And now a reading from the Gospel according to John. And I've chosen to shrink the number of verses that I'm reading. John 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, after he was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The crowd who had been gathered with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were testifying about him. That's why the crowd came to meet him, because they had heard about his miraculous sign that he had done. Therefore, the Pharisees said to each other, See, you've accomplished nothing. Look! The whole world is following him. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. There are some glaring inconsistencies that abide deep in the collective heart of the American people. For example, we can be proud of developing three COVID-19 vaccines in less than a year's time, and still be filled with a recklessness, if you listen closely, that many of our citizens equate with freedom. This lust for so-called freedom drives many of our citizens to brazenly turn on the very public health officials who led in the creation of these vaccines. The inconsistencies do not end there. Americans, in recent years, have shown an increased support for educators, at least in terms of being willing to apply public pressure on the authorities that be to increase teachers' salaries after many years of those salaries remaining in stagnation. And yet, these same citizens have, while they've publicly praised teachers that have literally thrown their own bodies over the top of their students' bodies in order to save their lives during several deadly mass shootings, and yet many of the same American citizens turn on teachers as well as their children's own best interests the very minute discussions on common sense gun safety and reform begin to take place. Again, their convictions seem to be rooted in what they describe as, quote, freedom. I'm sure these types of glaring inconsistencies are not unique to American citizens, because apparently there were streets packed with people in our scripture story who were singing and chanting Hosanna on Palm Sunday, and yet were the exact same people who just a few days later were screaming, Crucify him! Now these sorts of examples make we human beings appear from the outside to be fickle. But I suggest that we are passionate creatures 
who are often guided into these wild pendulum swings by way of our expectations. Our expectations tend to guide our motivations. In our reading, the crowd came up from the country to purify themselves for the Passover festival, and they have some very strong expectations. They want to make Jesus their kind of king, the one they expect. The crowd hears that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and they are just sporting for a fight. So the crowd arms themselves with palm branches and goes out to meet Jesus, singing his praises with what is an adaptation of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you. Give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Once again, the crowd wants to make Jesus their kind of king, their expected kind of king, a national king who would lead a violent uprising of monumental proportions and overthrow the Roman government who had been holding them all as prisoners in their own land. But once again, Jesus would have no part of it. Now, before we get too tough on this crowd for heaping their expectations on Jesus, and before we go on to talk about what Jesus did do, we would do well to admit that we have often placed our own sets of expectations on Jesus as well. Do you remember the movie, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby? You know, the one with Will Ferrell? Yeah, it's goofy and silly. I'm not too proud to quote from that movie, though, when it underscores my point so well. The character Ricky Bobby was talking about Jesus and says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. <laughs> now, before you get too worried about me for quoting such a crazy movie in a sermon, we tend to fancy Jesus in our minds. Well, you know, as Jesus who likes the same brand of politics we like, our Jesus likes the same people we like and avoids the same people we avoid. I mean, my Jesus would drive the same car as me. Not too new, not too fancy, but not too old and not too embarrassing. I'm relatively sure my Jesus would like to cook barbecue. And I bet your vision of Jesus in your mind, well, I bet he tends to favor your favorites if you're being completely honest, at least sometimes. But here's the thing. Jesus did not let the expectations of the crowd determine his behavior or shake his convictions. And if he were here today, you can bet he would not let our often unreasonable expectations of him determine his behavior or shake his convictions either. Now, I don't know about you, but it takes incredible courage for me to be willing to knowingly disappoint anyone, especially people I know. 
I mean, I love to be liked. I love to avoid conflict if it's possible. I find words of encouragement and affirmation so much more pleasant than disappointing people, or even worse, offending them. I don't always get it right, even when the stakes are high. Maybe even more often than not, I allow the expectations of others at times to determine how I behave. But I'm trying to learn to be more like Palm Sunday Jesus, and I hope you'll join me on that journey. Palm Sunday Jesus, well, he held to the passion of his convictions when the stakes were at the highest level. Palm Sunday Jesus drew on courage that came from deep within. Palm Sunday Jesus did not give in to the praise of the crowd. He did not ride the horse they had in mind for him. He did not lead a military revolt. Nor did Palm Sunday Jesus turn back, slow down, compromise, or call for a poll. Palm Sunday Jesus didn't pull back or tone it down or play it safe. He didn't shy away from talking about religion or even politics in order to make those around him more comfortable. Actually, Palm Sunday is perhaps, now that I think about it, the most political statement Jesus ever made. Now this sounds safe enough as long as we're just talking about Jesus here, but if I'm being completely honest, it makes me uncomfortable to think of the potential for conflict in my own life and even in my own ministry. Should I follow his example too closely in these matters? How about you? Make no mistake, however, the gospel of Jesus is political. Now, we're not talking about Democratic versus Republican. We're talking about politics in the public, moral, and ethical sense. By definition, and I quote the dictionary, politics, the affairs of the city, and influencing other people on a civic or individual level. I wondered as I prepared this message how people can sit in church services year in and year out and have not heard or noticed before that when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday, he was performing a political act. The fact that, that many of you may have never heard this from the pulpit is actually proof that many pastors have a strong need to be liked and not ruffle any feathers. Every mainline pastor I know took the same classes I took in seminary. We were taught about the political nature of this act on Palm Sunday because of its context in which it happened. But most pastors like to keep their jobs. Now, I can't blame them. I hope to keep both of mine as well. But telling you the truth is even more important to me than keeping my job. Palm Sunday was a political act unlike any other. One Jewish peasant purposefully uh, disappointing those who were cheering him on, rallying around him. He was also alienating the Jewish religious authorities and angering the extremely powerful Roman government, and doing all of this at the very same time. Now, why was all of this so political? Well, I'm glad you asked. In spreading its own version of a gospel of sorts, the Empire of Rome was busy spreading what they called Pax Romana, which means 
Roman peace. The leadership of the Roman Empire genuinely believed that it was spreading peace, and its method for spreading peace, well, was actually violence, military force. They praised their gods that the enemies of the Roman peace had been killed when it would happen. The gospel of Jesus is radically different. The gospel Jesus proclaimed is the politics of humility, sacrifice, service, forgiveness, speaking truth to power when it ignores human vulnerability, and a deep abiding commitment to nonviolent love that embraces all people, but especially those we call our enemies. Now, tragically, we Americans today tend to live by the politics of Rome more than we live by the politics of Jesus. Whether we are Republicans or Democrats or Independents, American culture offers countless ways we can seek to influence others through coercion, manipulation, and violence. Fortunately, Jesus revealed an alternative. This was his life message. He called it the kingdom of God. It's a political way of life, a way of guiding the affairs of the city as a whole and influencing people that was based not on triumphant violence, but rather on stubborn humility and a moral compass that does not shift along with popular opinion, whichever way the wind blows. The politics of Jesus makes sure that everyone has daily bread. The politics of Jesus seeks to forgive debts and sins. It seeks to avoid the temptation to return evil for evil against our neighbors and even against our enemies. And the politics of Jesus calls us into a life of forgiveness. This stuff is very political, and it's very risky. Because sometimes making sure everyone has daily bread well, that means challenging the systems of wealth and power, not just handing out food. Oh, we need to hand out food, but we also need to challenge systems that hoard wealth and power to the detriment of the most vulnerable among us. I can only imagine what Jesus might have to say about the tax code in the United States and how the wealthiest of our citizens and corporations stockpile money and riches while others are literally starving and, and quite honestly experiencing increasing rates of homelessness in many parts of the nation. I can only imagine the speech Jesus would give to those who consistently deflect and prevent conversations from even happening about gun control measures and safety. You know, he had nothing but reprimands to give those close to him whenever they tried to use deadly force. And by the way, he gave one of the strongest statements he ever made about his regard for children when he said, it would be better for a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and be tossed into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to so much as stumble. I can only imagine how horrified Jesus would be to see how many of his modern followers seem to support capital punishment, even though that was exactly how Jesus himself was executed, as we know, as an innocent man. I bet he would wonder how his followers, knowing that 4% of those who are executed in our nation are later discovered to be innocent, I wonder how he would feel about that. 
These are just a tiny number of some of the big picture sorts of things that are political and that guide, because of that nature, they guide the, the mindset, the moral compass, the affairs of our cities and states and nation and influence us and our own sense of morality as a people. These are exactly the sorts of things that can cause us to encounter, well, conflict and ultimately to disappoint all others around us when we begin to speak about them. Already, some of us are uncomfortable even going this far with the conversation. This courage Jesus displayed, it's not just a call to a personal ethic. This is a political ethic. Indeed, the politics of Jesus seeks to influence our personal lives, but it also seeks to influence our political lives. And wherever personal or political systems use violence or power or coercion to be triumphant and victorious, Jesus beckons us to follow in a different way into the kingdom of God that lives and dies by love and humility and service and forgiveness and justice and peace. The Roman Empire and the American Empire actually share a great deal in common. We become so accustomed to our own success in America that we refuse to recognize that most of the wars we fight are about the pursuit of wealth or resources that will help us grow our wealth. And like the Romans back then, we also use our own military to enforce our certain brand of peace. But is it the type of peace that comes through violence? The loudest religious voices in our culture are evangelical Christians who, for at least the last 30 years, have proclaimed a gospel that looks more like the American dream than God's dream of the beloved community, where all are cherished equals. And then, like the streets in Jerusalem that day, our corner of the world is so often lined with loud, obnoxious fans. These fanatics all have strong opinions. Have you ever noticed fans have a rather volatile relationship with the events they're watching? One minute booing, another cheering, sometimes throwing stuff in the air in celebration, and sometimes throwing stuff from the stands at the people down on the field or the court. All the noise from the fans lining the streets of our lives is what keeps most of us scared to draw on the courage we have deep inside us. But friends, we have the same passionate and courageous spirit within us that was within Jesus of Nazareth. We have the strength within us to summon all the courage needed to march a straight line through life's crowded streets and with our own words and actions to present an alternative to the gospel of Rome and or America. You may not think of yourself as strong. You may not think of yourself as overly political. You may not think you have what it takes to make that kind of a difference. But friend, those are someone else's expectations of you, not God's. Because you, dear child of God, we're not created to play it safe all the time. 
You were not created to be stifled and stuffed down and to remain paralyzed by the expectations and norms of a society whose moral compass so often points towards ways that lead to death and destruction. Now, there are times to quietly and privately exercise delicate compassion or mercy or discernment. But when the equality and human dignity of the most vulnerable among us are on the line, well, it's time to draw on that holy courage within us. It's time to step across the line, to let the chips fall where they may, to set our face towards Jerusalem and let nothing stop us from forging ahead right in front of God and everybody else. Now, we don't all need to die as a martyr like Jesus, but I believe the call of Palm Sunday demands that we find the courage to present an alternative to the greed-driven, pro-violence culture in which we live. Drawing on courage will undoubtedly make us uncomfortable at times. And we can always think of a thousand reasons we should play it safe and make sure that we're still well-liked by those around us. But if there's one thing Palm Sunday teaches us, it's that disappointing the masses is sometimes the very thing that starts a movement for positive change. Again and again, let us draw on holy courage when the stakes are high and be willing to reject society's expectations of us and our world. And instead, let us live into God's expectations of us and what kind of world we are called to shape. So be it. Amen.